0: How do you know it's time to start thinking about baseball? Well, there's four weeks to pitchers and catchers, the rumor mills and hot stove leagues are red hot, and Baseball HQ Radio is back.
1: Here's the pitch by Downing, swinging, there's a drive
0: into left center field, that ball is going to be out of here, it's gone, it's 7-15, there's a new home run champion
1: of all time,
2: and it's Henry
1: Aaron. The
2: fire. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of January 18th. It is show number one of the 2013 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and I'll be talking with Baseball HQ Minor Leagues expert Rob Gordon talking about prospect evaluation, scouting versus stats, his new Top 100 Prospects list, and much more. In addition to that, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst returning for another year is Harold Nichols. We've got a new American League analyst. BaseballHQ.com columnist Jock Thompson joins us in his regular Minor League Minute. Rob Gordon doing double duty looking at San Francisco right-handed pitcher Kyle Crick. Matt Beagle joins us with a new feature called Alternative HQ, talking about the different games you can play and in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about looking ahead to this 2013 fantasy baseball season. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Pitchers and catchers in a month? we got to talk some baseball. And for the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with player news from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Thanks a lot, Patrick. It's great to be back. It
0: is. It's always fun to be talking about baseball at any time of the year, but this is the month before pitchers and catchers, and we're just starting to stoke the fires a little bit, and certainly there was a lot going on in the offseason in the National League to talk about, and maybe the biggest signing of all might have been the Los Angeles Dodgers signing ace pitcher Zach Granke. How do you like this deal?
2: Oh, yeah, that's, it's a great deal for the Dodgers. I mean, Zach Granke is, is uh, at this point, he's 29 years old. He's at the top of his game. Uh, he's pitched in the National League before. He's proved he can do that. Uh, did well in the American League last year after the trade to, to, uh, to Los Angeles. So, I mean, you know, here's a guy that, that really is one of the top pitchers in baseball. Uh, there's no reason to think he won't continue what he was doing. And he's going to a ballpark that's going to help him. So uh, that's a great signing for, um, for the Dodgers. We're predicting a 3.51 ERA at this point uh, and uh, 16 wins. Uh, clearly, he could exceed that. Uh, it's it's a, it's a case where going the extra buck makes some sense. Uh, I think in terms of uh, of drafts on Zach Greinke.
0: One of the uh, things that a lot of people are talking about these days in in fantasy baseball theory circles is the question: Are pitchers getting more reliable than they used to be, and can we trust them with more dollars invested in a, in an auction format or higher round draft picks in a straight draft format?
2: What do you think? Well, you know that may be true of the top pitchers. I think maybe in fact there are some guys who are who are, are at that level, and Granky's certainly one of them. But the, I think the, for me, um, the other thing about pitchers, though, is we have got uh, we, we always have an injury history. Uh, that's, uh, that's something to worry about with any pitcher. They throw so many pitches. There's so many chances for them to get injured that um, I think investing a lot of money in pitchers doesn't make a lot of sense simply because there are always other guys out there, and there are guys who will pop up during the course of the year who will pitch very, very well. And if you're going to go with the theory, though, Zach
0: Granke might not be a bad guy. I was just looking at his stats the other day, and for the last three years, he's been up around 50% ground ball rate while he's been maintaining a uh, 7 to 10 DOM rate, uh, strikeouts per nine innings, and a really good command ratio, 3-4 to 1 uh, strikeouts to walks. This guy can really get the job done. He's been unlucky in the past, but, boy, he, he's really got the skills. Yeah, he really does have the skills. And, you know, if
2: you're going to go with that theory, Granke's a guy, certainly a guy to spend money on
0: along with uh, maybe Justin Verlander. And, of course, we would have said that about Roy Halladay last year, and look how that worked out. So there are some caveats to the whole issue. Yeah, very definitely. Another deal that was uh, caught a lot of people a bit off guard, I think, was Shinsu Chu being traded from uh, one part of Ohio to the other. He goes from Cleveland to Cincinnati, where he's going to play center field
2: and lead off. This is a good thing for the Reds. It is a good thing for the Reds. I mean, we've got a guy here, and uh, you, you've got a guy with Sin Su Chu, whose contact rate is 75 percent. And you look at that and say, leadoff hitter? I don't know, but here's a guy whose uh, on base percentage should be around 360. He gets a lot of walks, uh, batting average around 280. Uh, not a not a 50 stolen base guy, but he'll swipe 18 to 20 and hit almost that many home runs. So certainly a a good guy to put into that leadoff spot in Cincinnati, uh, and the ballpark certainly won't won't hurt him at all especially with the kind of power he has
0: now how does this shake up the Reds uh, outfield situation they they uh, traded away Drew Stubbs which opens the center field spot but is anybody going to lose some time here
2: well you know I think what it does is is it uh, it keeps some guys in the minors it gives uh, gives Hamilton a little more time to develop I mean eventually Hamilton is a center fielder and and the uh, the uh, leadoff hitter they've moved him out of shortstop into the outfield and that's going to happen but uh, it gives him more time to get ready I think and and certainly kind of stabilizes uh, with veterans the uh, the red situation in the outfield.
0: Nick, over in Chicago, the Cubs raised a few eyebrows by signing a 32-year-old closer from Japan, Kiyuji Fujikawa. A lot of people thought he's the top closer in the Japanese leagues. Uh, first of all, what do you think of the signing? And second of all, is he likely to be the closer in Chicago?
2: I think he's a good signing. I, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of thing, uh, his skills look to be the sort of thing that are worth taking a chance on. I mean, we've seen... Uh, with pitchers coming over from Japan, varying kinds of things. Uh, some guys have surprised us. Some guys have not done so well. Uh, and, and so there seems to be a, certainly a, an adaptation uh, thing that we can't, in fact, quite predict yet in terms of moving from uh, Japan from Japan to Major League Baseball. So that's always a risk. But uh, this guy looks like uh, he could be the real deal. He's saved a bunch of games in Japan. Uh, he's got good, uh, excellent, in, in Japan with 1.36 ERA. Uh, over the past six years, 12.4 dominance, 202 saves. Okay, so here's a guy who's done it uh, and is, at a, again, at a, at a decent age, 32 years old, I believe, and so really at a good age in terms of being able to produce. Now, is he going to be a closer? No, I don't think so from the start of the season. I think Carlos Mormol begins the season as a closer. But here's a guy who's really shaky. He has control issues. He's blown up before. Uh, the Cubs have not always been happy with him. So I think a couple of things are going on here. One is there's some real pressure on Marmol to produce because he's got someone behind him at this point who actually could take over. Uh, and the second, the, the Cubs should feel a lot more secure if he does blow up, which I think is likely to happen before too long in the season. Then they've got someone they really can turn to this year, uh, which they did not have last year.
0: I noticed that uh, when BaseballHQ.com wrote up this uh, transaction, uh, Brian Rudd pointed out, and you pointed out just now, 1.36 ERA, that looks good. 12.4 strikeouts per nine DOM rate, that looks pretty good. And a 2.3 control ratio looks pretty good. So
2: why would they wait? Yeah, you know, that's a a good question. I I think that... um... I think they wait simply because uh, they want to see what Marmol could do in spring training, and they're not sure about this guy yet. I mean, they've not seen him throw a major league pitch. It may be that coming out of spring training, if Fujikawa produces the way that he should, he will wind up being the closer. Uh, so I think that, you know, I think he's a good buy in early drafts before his role is settled, uh, and while it still looks like Marmol would be the guy to take over, uh, but certainly I would not be surprised to see Fujikawa as the closer coming out of spring training, especially if Marmol struggles at all.
0: I think you said a mouthful there. This guy could be a great bargain to get in early drafts because of the uncertainty. But Carlos Marmol walked, what was it? He was walking a batter an inning for the first half of last year, and he he brought that down by a little bit less than half. But he's still walking five and a half guys per nine. Nick, that's not successful closer material.
2: It's not, not at all. I mean, you can't, uh, you, you don't want to be a closer who puts guys on base with free passes. And Marmol is that.
0: Staying with closers, Nick, the Washington Nationals signed Rafael Soriano, who was with the Yankees, and gave him a, a pretty good contract, two years, $28 million. It, at that price, you got to believe that they're going to install him as the closer, which uh, means uh, Drew Storn and Tyler Clippard are out. Um, first of all... What do you think of this deal? And second of all, what, what do you think it means for these other two guys? Well, you know,
2: Soriano, Soriano certainly looks as though he would be a solid closer in Washington. There's no reason to suspect him that he, he cannot do as well as he did last year in New York. Uh, so in that regard, it's a good signing. Uh, the, the issue, of course, with Soriano is we've got a history of elbow problems, uh, a D-health grade uh, rating in baseball HQ. So here's a guy that uh, he was fine last season, but uh, his past suggests that uh, – I don't know if we can count on Soriano getting through two consecutive seasons without some kind of health issues. So, so that's the downside of the signing. What does it do for Clippard and for uh, uh, and for Drew Storen? Well, Cl- Clippard Let's take Clippard first. Clippard's a bit of an issue as a closer. He, he saved a bunch of games last year, but he a guy with a fly ball rate that approaches sixty percent. That's not something you necessarily want in your closer. Um, so, I think that's one reason they were probably a little a little uncertain uh, about Clippard's ability to continue closing. Uh, That fly ball rate would be a bit scary. Uh, I would have a lot of Maalocks in the dugout with me uh, if the guy was out there closing, I think. Drew Storen uh, took over in in September as a co-closer with Clippard. Looked incredible. 14 strikeouts, no walks, uh, pitched extremely well. A couple of things to think about with Storen. First of all, I don't believe he allowed a home run um, last season in the second half, and so we know that's going to change. The other thing with Storing is, and I think this is maybe what the management was looking at, uh, he blew the final game of the division series. I mean, allowed four runs in the ninth inning, uh, big Cardinal comeback. In fact, the entire bullpen kind of blew up in that game. Cardinals got runs a couple of innings prior to that and made a big comeback uh, to win the division series. And so that may have made management think, now wait a minute, our bullpen is not as strong as it ought to be, uh, and we're going to fix that. Uh, so my, my take on Storin is I think the guy has the goods to close. Uh, I think he proved coming back last year that his, his arm is now healthy. Um, so my guess is that uh, that Storin will be there and, and able to close down the road, especially if Soriano's uh, should injury history should should pop back up. Um, and I think Storing can get the job done.
0: Rafael Soriano, Nick, uh, over the last four years, his expected ERA has ranged from 311 to 410, so about in a range of a run. But his actual ERAs on the field have ranged from 173 to 412. And uh, the big swinging point that affects all of that is his strand rate, which has bounced back and forth from the low 70s to the mid-80s. And we've done research at BaseballHQ.com that says closers and other relief pitchers can maintain that strand rate And I'd be a lot more comfortable with Soriano if it was consistently in the 80s rather than bouncing back and forth from 80 to 74 to 83 to 70 to 85 last year because, uh, boy, that really makes a change in the actual performance on the field. As that strand rate
2: swings around, so does his result. It does indeed. I mean, that's something definitely to think about. And if you look at at our current projections at Baseball HQ, uh, we're projecting 15 saves for Soriano. We're projecting a good good handful of saves for Storin. So, we're not ready to give uh, Soriano a full season's worth of closing yet.
0: And a 284 ERA, 110 ratio, despite the fact that his expected ERA is 354. And we should say that the expected ERA slots in a standardized level of strand rate. And if he exceeds it, he does better. And if he falls short of it, he does worse. All right, Nick, thanks very much for doing that.
2: You're very welcome, Patrick. Good to be back.
0: And we'll talk to you again next week. All right. Harold Nichols is a columnist and writer at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League Central as well as being the National League Analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and our new analyst from Southern California. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome to the first show of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season.
1: Thank you, PD. I'm looking forward to it. Can't wait for the season to start.
0: And in the meantime, we've got a lot to talk about in the American League, especially out in the American League West. Let's start in Seattle. They've made some big changes in the park, and they seem to be bringing in a lot of sluggers to take advantage of the shorter fences. Let's talk about Mike Morse.
1: Yeah, that was a big trade. Seattle acquired Morse. Uh, they sent out John Jaso to Oakland, and Oakland returned send a, a minor league pitching prospect over to Washington. But uh, this is an interesting transaction just from the standpoint of what Seattle has been doing all offseason. Uh, they've been, been acquiring uh, a lot of sluggers. Obviously, they picked up Jason Bay and Raul Ibanez. They brought in Kendris Morales from the Angels. And now they're bringing in Morse, which kind of tells you a little bit of how they think Safeco Field is going to play after they move the fences in, which is something that that, that you directed in one of your research columns here recently.
0: Yeah, they definitely, them and San Diego both uh, brought in the fences uh, in Seattle. They also took a big scoreboard that added eight feet to the height in the left field, left center field area, and got it out of there. Now it's going to be an eight-foot standard fence around the the whole whole outfield. Um, It looks like Seattle's park is going to be a little friendlier than San Diego's, even with the uh, changes in San Diego as well. And, uh, Jock, just to give you an idea, in the column that I wrote... I compared the new dimensions of Seattle with all the other parks in the big leagues, and it goes from being sort of a biggish park to being U.S. Cellular Field. There's very little difference in the outfield dimensions between those two parks. And when you think of how often balls fly out of uh, U.S. Cellular Field in Chicago, that says something about what they're trying to do in Seattle and maybe makes these guys look a little more attractive as power prospects for the 2013 season.
1: And when I read your your research article, that's that's what popped out at me, what you said about U.S. cellular field um, and the fact that the, uh, the fences are coming in pretty much around and that scoreboard in left field is coming down. I've been there. I know what that scoreboard does to line drives. Um, it's going to be a much friendlier park, or, or at least Seattle's management seems to think so. And they brought in a ton of power, and, and Morse is, is just the latest in uh, of those moves. Um, Morse is one of these guys who um, he 's he's far too aggressive uh, way more aggressive than he should be um, he, he chases pitches out of the out of the zone a lot, and his ground ball rate is uh, is usually up in the stratosphere last year it was fifty five percent but he 's got incredible power his his home run to fly ball rate is is upwards of twenty percent consistently, in other words, when he hits it in the air it 's going places so If he can stay healthy, I like this move for Seattle. Um, I like it offensively anyway, so um, I I think he's going to do fine there.
0: One thing we have to warn people about, though, Jock, is with all the people they brought in in Seattle, plus some of the people that they had on the roster beforehand, there may be a playing time crunch here, so we're going to have to wait to see how things shake out in spring training because they seem to have six or seven outfielders for three spots and three or four guys for the DH first base spot. Um, If you've got a draft, this weekend or or well before the start of the regular season these seattle guys might make interesting speculations but you got to be very concerned about how the playing time is going to get divvied up because there's just too many bodies
1: yeah i would agree my, my take on this is if you're if you're going to speculate in seattle probably the best two to speculate would be uh, uh morse and uh Kendris Morales. Um, there is a lot of uh, uh, uncertainty about where the playing time is going to shake out. You've got Raul Ibanez, who um, is probably going to be playing against right-handers, but we don't know where. Like you've suggested, you've got uh, Justin Smoke and Mike Carp already on the team. Uh, I, I don't see their spots right now any longer. And you've got Jesus Montero at catcher. Um, you would assume that he's going to be the catcher now that Jaso's gone. But then again, he has his own defensive issues. So you're right. There's a lot of shaking out to do, and I wouldn't be surprised if Seattle has a few more moves in them over these next couple of months.
0: Kendris Morales comes up from Anaheim. Going to Anaheim in that trade It was Jason Vargas, who had a pretty good year last year, and he might be getting out of town just at the right time, getting into Anaheim.
1: Yeah, uh, the, the fact that uh, Seattle was more than willing to shop Vargas, who'd been a workhorse for them and, and pitched really well in, uh, in Seattle. His ERA was under three last year. He goes to Anaheim, and my the, my first take on that trade was that uh, what a terrible move for the Angels. I like Morales' upside, a, another year off his injury. Um, he's got like Morris; he has really good power. Um, he's a switch hitter. Um, but Vargas, I didn't know that much about. I did some research on him, and and I was more and more impressed with what I came away with. He's not an ace, but um, he keeps your team in games. And it's really interesting comparing Angel Stadium to Seattle recently. Angel Stadium actually suppresses scoring more and suppresses runs more over the last three years per our ballpark effects than Safeco Field did. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised to see Jason Vargas have a very similar year uh, in Angel Stadium that he did to Safeco, particularly with gloves like Mike Trout and Peter Borges in the outfield. And, And now they have Josh Hamilton at the other corner. So if um, if Angel Stadium is still playing friendly, uh, look for Vargas to to win another maybe 14, 15 games backed by a pretty good offense. His, his ERA is going to be maybe a little less, maybe a little more than four. But um, uh, I I like his chances of surviving there probably than a lot of people do.
0: Now, Jock, uh, we've been talking about Mike Morse coming to the Seattle Mariners. That was part of a three-team deal that also included John Jayso going from Seattle to Oakland. And, some people think this is a great deal for Seattle and not so good for Oakland. Some people think it's a good deal for Oakland, not so good for Seattle. What do you think?
1: Well, my first take uh I hadn't followed Jaso that closely last year. I didn't have him on any of my teams. And my first take was um that's that's kind of a strange move by Oakland. But then uh, again, it was another one of those things when I looked at the numbers from last year. Um Jaso has always been a an on-base machine. I mean, his his uh his walk rate was 16% last year two years before that it was 15 percent um he's he's a billy bean kind of player and he makes really good contact for a catcher he's always been in the in the mid 80s last two years he's been 88 85 83 um the thing that really upped his offensive numbers last year was was a little power spike his he, he upped his px to 115 he uh he hit 10 home runs. Now, I doubt he's going to do this again in uh, in Oakland because Oakland has all that foul ground. And almost anything hit in the air in Oakland is caught. You have to hit it a long way to hit it out of the park. And there's a lot of foul balls that turn into outs there. Uh, he does real well against right-handed pitching. He's probably going to enter into a platoon, the strong side of a platoon, with Derek Norris, who really hasn't done much against right-handed pitching. Oakland is trying to optimize their window of winning right now. They they did well last year. They, they, they have a lot of pitching. Um, they're looking to improve their offense. They think they can win. I think they can, too. I think this is a good short-term move for Oakland.
0: Yeah, I like uh, JSO Splits 302 batting average last year against right handers as you mentioned and a 419 on-base percentage drawing a ton of walks and getting a ton of hits and slugging 508 all 10 of his home runs last season were against right handers so even though he's probably going to would have been better off power wise to stay in Seattle with the fences having come in he's going to be a pretty good fit I think down in uh, down in Oakland and solves a problem for them which you mentioned which is Derek Norris who uh was a Prized prospect to catcher just can't hit right-handed pitching right now as a young player so maybe this buys him some time to to get more comfortable with that idea who knows I like the move for for both Seattle and Oakland I mean Seattle gets Mike Morse out of the deal and you said this could be a terrific thing for them uh, getting him let's move on now to a column that Dan Becker wrote at BaseballHQ.com about players who are coming back from injuries and I know a couple of names caught your eye veterans in the American League East david ortiz of boston brett gardner of the yankees
1: yeah brett gardner is a real interesting case because he had an elbow injury that uh, at first they were calling tendonitis last year and it turned out to be something more serious than that um but if you look at brett gardner's uh numbers over the years he makes his living walking and running his 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 on-base percentage is terrific uh and his speed is is world class obviously he um um, uh, until last year his, his, his speed score has always been in the mid-150s uh, Last year with a, a small sample 31 at bats We're going to throw that one out But Brent Gardner makes his fantasy living with his legs he, he, he stole 47 and 49 bases Respectively in 2010 and 2011 This injury had nothing to do with his legs I expect him to make a full comeback And hopefully in, uh, in my leagues um, People are going to be um, devaluing him Because of the off year and the injury
0: and Ortiz, David Ortiz, comes back from a, a bit of an injury-plagued campaign.
1: Yeah, uh, Dan downgraded Ortiz, and I, and I understand why. Um, David Ortiz is is getting older. He's he's 35, 36, and uh, uh, he's 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 ha- he's he's having a lot more injuries these days. and And uh, there are leg injuries, their knee injuries. On the other hand, David Ortiz's power is is completely intact. If you if you look at the numbers. Um, and he's actually, the last two years, he's hit lefties real well. Now, I don't know how long that's going to last, but if David Ortiz can stay healthy, he's still going to be a 20-home-run guy, and I think the strategy, if you're going to consider drafting Ortiz, is talk up the injuries, talk up his age, and pay for 20 home runs because you're going to get that if he just stays reasonably healthy, and if you're lucky and if he can stay off the DL, he can be a 30-home-run guy again.
0: In Anaheim, your home base, uh, Stephen Nickrand wrote a really interesting starting pitchers buyer's guide column recently at BaseballHQ.com, focusing in on the rate at which starting pitchers generate swings and misses, which seems like a pretty good thing to know about, because swinging and missing means you're doing something right when you're up there on the hill, and there was a lot of the usual suspects, guys, you'd expect to see at or near the top of the leaderboards in those swing and miss type statistics, but one name really jumped out at me that Stephen brought our attention to, and that was Garrett Richards of the Anaheim Uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim Uh, you know a little bit about Garrett Richards were you surprised
1: no I wasn't surprised I've seen him pitch all year Garrett Richards is he had his first shot at the rotation last year and uh, it it was probably his first full shot he 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 was up and down they yo-yoed him a little bit Um, that's the problem with a contending team if you don't show some consistency they are going to send you back down to the minors or put you in the bullpen and garrett richard was was inconsistent. There were times he looked terrific he, he He generates ground balls at a high clip and he gets a lot of swing and misses. but if you look at his his statistics uh, for the entire year his his dominance wasn 't wasn 't that high it was around seven um, It was acceptable, but his problem was his walk rate and the fact that he wasn 't generating ground balls like he was in the minors real inconsistent guy getting swing and misses um, his biggest problem the biggest problem that I saw with him was. Too many, too many uh, poorly located balls over the plate, particularly with runners on base. Uh, this is a guy who has mid-90s velocity. He has he has terrific moving stuff. If he can get better location um, and and perhaps improve his off-speed pitch, which is one of the reasons he wasn't getting a lot of swings and misses for strike three, I like Garrett Richards. The problem that he has right now, again, with the competing Angels is that with the addition of Vargas, he's probably going to start the year in the minors and wait for an injury shot. Um, that said, the way pitchers get injured, uh, Garrett Richards is probably going to get a good um, 15, 20 starts with the Angels this year. And uh, I, I like his long-term chances. Um, he has some work to do, but uh, the raw the raw skills are there.
0: Jock, in your own column at BaseballHQ.com, a couple of weeks ago you've been looking at uh, position by position, league by league at uh, – Real good candidates for dynasty-type formats and, and long-term keeper-type formats. And again, a lot of names pop through your filters. Guys who had to be under 27, under $10 last year, but over 50 innings. Uh, one name that I uh, was spotted that really intrigued me among several Oakland athletics pitchers was Brett Anderson, the left-hander.
1: Yeah, it seems like Brett Anderson's been around for, for a while, and, and, and when he is, he's always on the DL. Um, the thing that really intrigues me about Anderson is that every time he gets off the DL, it's like he never left. He's terrific. I mean, you, you don't see any skills degradation. And, and part of this probably is that he's still fairly young. Um, he's he's 25 years old. And um, you look at his fastball, he, he he doesn't throw that hard anyway. It's, mo- it's mostly change-ups and control. But he, he still pitches in the 90s. And um, there, he, he hasn't lost anything with these injuries. Now, he just came off Tommy John surgery last year. He came back in August. And he was pitching lights out again until late September when he, he came down with another oblique strain. So he's a high-risk, high-reward guy. He's the kind of guy that if you haven't loaded up your roster with age and and high-risk injury types... He's the guy you really want to take a chance on because he's still young. If he can just stay healthy for one of these years, he's going to give you a huge profit. He's a really good pitcher. His only problem is injury.
0: And with the A's improving, uh, his his one bugaboo in past years, even he had a terrific 2009. He had a 128 whip, uh, a bit unlucky to have a 406 ERA because his XERA was a half run better than that and uh, the problem was he only managed 11 wins because that was a fairly poor Oakland team. Now the team is a lot better. It's This is a really interesting guy. I mean, uh, ground ball percentages are climbing up from 50%, which is already good, to 60% last year in a small sample. There's a lot to like here, but like you say, there's a lot of risk too.
1: Yeah, and and you're absolutely right about Oakland. I mean, Oakland has uh, just their lineup last year over the last two months. They were at the top of the the American League in almost every offensive category. Now, we don't know if that's going to sustain this year. It probably won't. But they're a lot better than they've been in recent years when you would use, if you were streaming starting pitching, you would stream it against Oakland because their offense was so poor. They've improved a great deal. Their bullpen is terrific. Uh, it's, it's probably better than it's been in a long time, and it was always pretty good. So you're right. If you can, if you can get beyond the, uh, the risk with Brett Anderson, um, he's, a, he's an awfully interesting name this year.
0: And you have to like these home run per nine figures as well over the last four years. 1.0 homer in uh, 2009 per nine innings, then a half, then 0.9, and last year just 0.3. This is a guy who's taking full advantage of that very low, ground, very low fly ball rate, very high ground ball rate. And then finally, uh, Jock, just before I let you go, uh, just the other day we had some news that Lance Berkman has signed in Texas. Uh, some spillover effects on some young players down there.
1: Before the, the Berkman signing, there was a lot of speculation as to whether Ian Kinsler was going to move over to first base and Texas was ready to start Jerickson Profar over at second. Um, obviously, the Berkman signing is going to put Profar in the minors. Um, Kinsler has, has made it fairly clear in polite terms that he would rather play second base. And the Rangers are going to stick with Keith Moreland at first. And that makes sense because Keith Moreland hits right-handed pitching very, very well. Uh, Kinsler... Is, is mediocre against righties. And with all the power that Texas has lost this year in terms of uh, home runs with, with losing Josh Hamilton and Mike Napoli, they are going to need that power, particularly against right-handed pitchers. They're going to need to have Moreland and A.J. Pierzynski and Berkman in the lineup. So uh, it's too bad for for, for pro-far owners, but uh, given Berkman's uh, uh, injury history, wouldn't surprise me to see him up that uh, that in, in in short order anyway.
0: You know what interests me about this transaction, Jock? is what it says about possibly how teams are moving towards more aggressive platooning. You mentioned before John Jason going to Oakland. They're very interested in his on-base percentage, and his performance against uh, right-handed pitching is certainly well a very attractive thing about him. Lance Berkman has a lot of trouble against right-handed pitching, as you mentioned. He only hit 176 against right-handers last year. Seems like a very good bet in order to rest him and to keep his weak bat out of the lineup against right-handers are two things that kind of fit together and maybe give them some opportunities. And You know, Jock, it reminds me, you're old enough to remember Earl Weaver of the Orioles back in the day. You remember in 1982, he had a platoon in left field with Gary Reneke, a right-handed hitter, and John Lowenstein, a left-handed hitter. And uh, listen to this numbers that they get between the two of them in platoon situations. They hit three ten between them. They had uh, 32 home runs, 89 RBIs, 8 stolen bases, and an OPS of one zero zero five that's really getting a lot of production not so much from the player but from the slot
1: pd that's a really good observation and and it has to do with money and the advent of 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 new and improved statistics more and more people are analyzing statistics uh we, we talked about uh uh the fact that, that Kinsler is, is much more valuable at second base where he's, he's an above-average hitter than he is at first base. And, and the reason is is that he, he's not very good against right-handed pitching. So, yeah, you're right, platooning is, is going to be one of the new things to watch.
0: And, of course, if they do adhere to a strict platoon with a guy like Berkman, it actually improves his value. All right, Jock, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, we'll catch up with you again in a week's time.
1: PD, terrific. Uh, enjoyed the maiden voyage and uh, looking forward to more of them.
0: Jock Thompson is a columnist at Baseball HQ and the American League analyst here at Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up next, our feature interview with minor league expert Rob Gordon. You are listening to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Here comes Roger Maris. Just
3: standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup the pitch to Roger, way outside ball line.
2: And the fans are starting to bow. Slow ball, too. That one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no
4: strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit, deep the right!
5: HQ Radio.
0: and welcome back to baseball hq radio patrick david here pleasure to be joined by baseball hq.com's minor league expert rob gordon rob welcome back to baseball hq radio first show of the 2013 fantasy baseball season
6: hey patrick thanks for having me on the show it's uh it's great to be back and thinking about baseball
0: Isn't it? It's always fun to look forward about a month away or so from pitchers and catchers, and the blood starts pumping. And of course, in most fantasy formats or a lot of fantasy formats, people are starting to think about the prospects. And what better time to ask you about it? Because the uh, BaseballHQ.com Top One Hundred list is coming out.
6: Yeah, it just came out, so it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Um, Put a lot of work into it this year, and uh, you know, it's I think it's a pretty good list. It's um, we did it a little bit differently this year than we, than we have in the past. Uh, a couple of years ago, we, Jeremy Deloney and I, uh, who write the, the minor league baseball book, um, we'd each do our, our own list, and then we'd we kind of debate about the, you know, who the players were and everything. And this last couple of years, we've kind of done a composite list, and so that's what's on the site. And then uh, in the following week, um, we'll have uh, some more comments about players maybe we differed
0: on. How does the process work overall? I, I know sometimes I've talked to you about this in the past that uh, there are sometimes really big differences where you've got a guy in the top ten and he might not even be on Jeremy's list, and vice versa. Or you, you know, you might you might have a guy in the top twenty; he's got him in his ninety ninety to hundred level. How do you square those circles?
6: Well, I mean, we do we do talk about it a little bit, but I think. You know, we had five. We had five. Uh, we have two new minor league writers, and then um, and then Brent Hershey, who's the editor of the minor league book, and uh, and does a lot of editing on the on the site. We all came up with a top one hundred list this year. So there were there were five uh, five guys coming, you know, putting together a list, and then we just kind of um, merged them all into one and, and did a composite ranking. And it it is a little bit tricky because you know there's um, Gregory Polanco is a outfielder for for Pittsburgh that I'm really high on, and I think I had him. On my own personal 100 list, maybe at 30, and I think on the composite list he came in. I think I don't think anyone else was nearly as high on him as, as I was, and so I think he came out in somewhere in the 50s on the composite list. So um, I think really, you know, the, it, it's it's hard because you, you know you, you you see the guys playing, you, you're convinced that certain guys at a certain level. It's hard to sort of compromise on that, and so I think the the compromise is that we we have enough input and enough people looking at it that it kind of filters out some of that stuff it's like you know doing the projections you look at eight different sites and kind of come up so it, it gets diluted a little bit but it also kind of uh, filters out any sort of uh, biases that one person might have for one player because maybe I saw Polanco on, a, on a, a day you know that he was really good and other people maybe saw him on days when he wasn't as good and so it filters out because you know we, it's not like we can see the guys play all year uh, you know at, at a certain level so I think it filters out some of those inconsistencies
0: and uh you you mentioned having seen the players of course you have limited opportunities you you have jobs for one thing but also you know sometimes you just don't get to see a player because he's out in california or something like that so to what extent do you guys balance the whole scouting versus stats debate
6: well i think you know we try to we try to balance it really carefully um you know i think I think we probably split the difference. I, I really I think we pay a lot of attention to the stats. Um I know I've had, you know, numerous conversations whether it's in the Arizona Fall League or just at, at games with uh, with scouts and other baseball analysts and I, there's definitely some people that per, you know put a lot of preference on um on the the player skills. Um and and I look at that carefully too and I do include that in, in our analysis, but I also look very carefully at the stats. I mean, I'm a firm believer that if a guy, you know, Think about like a guy like Julio Teheran for for Atlanta, who you know, I still think he's going to be a good pitcher, but he was horrible last year. <laughs> he had a yeah. you know five over a five ERA. So okay, he might have all this stuff in the world, but if if he can't get anybody out at AAA, there's there's something that's going on there that you have to be worried about. Um, or if a guy's got a really good you know really good stuff, but he can't throw strikes. I mean, that, I, I do think you have to blend those two together. I don't think I don't see how you can can say this guy's going to be great even though he's never produced on the baseball field he's got all these skills well he may never actually live up to the potential so i I think you really have to balance the two carefully
0: when you're looking at the progress of a player's career i imagine it's very rare to non-existent to have a 18 year old kid who's just in in rookie ball make the top 100 list uh, or any kind of Top player list because you just haven't seen him enough. He's too young. It's too hard to project. But you follow this guy as he goes along, uh, you know, 18, 19, he starts moving up, and uh, 20 years old, maybe he's in double A or 21. And when you're watching the progression of the stats, uh, how do you sort of figure out well he's in a tougher league but he's older so the competition's tougher but he should be tougher too and are you looking for a kind of a straight line increase year over year as they move up the leagues or just holding their own or how, how do you calibrate that
6: well it, i really do think it depends on the context and so if a guy's very young for especially at double a if a guy's 18 or 19 or even 20 at double a which is pretty young and and they're holding their own i'm okay with that but if they're, if they're kind of at the appropriate age level for, for the league that they're in and they're not doing what they should be doing, then I'm, I really want to see the stats actually start to reflect that. Um, and when they don't, that's when it's a, a bit of a red flag. Um, you know, and so it, it really does depend on that context. That, you know, if a guy guy's moved up quickly, like Jerickson Profar is a great example. He's the, he's the first player on our list. I mean, his numbers at, at AA and the majors aren't – the stats are not going to jump off the page. Um, but the fact that he was nineteen when he was doing that does jump off the page, and so it really is kind of a, it depends on that league context and the age that they're at.
0: Is it common for a player to move up sort of fairly aggressively and do well at you know he starts at rookie ball in a and a then high a or whatever the case might be and he he keeps he keeps doing well in the competition then all of a sudden hits some kind of threshold where a double a that's where the the train r- run, runs off the track, and he he just you know never never gets beyond that and and stalls at a level
6: yeah absolutely and double a is where that happens often, that's really I consider double a kind of the proving grounds uh for for prospects because anything you see below that i mean it you got to remember that there's some of the players that they're playing against in the Midwest League are never going to make it out of the midwest league they might be. 23 in the Midwest League, and they're they're never going any you know any further than that, or you know maybe they get to High A, but that's that's all their baseball career is going to amount to. Um, so you could go see a you know Midwest League game, or a South you know a Sally game in, in the South Atlantic League, and and see you know one legitimate major league player on on either team. Right? You get to Double A, and, and you're going to see you're going to see a lot of good talent. And then conversely, when you get to Triple A, you could go see the Toledo Mud play. <laughs> And you might, you might not see any major leaguers on that team either, or at least not, not major league regulars. You're going to get guys that are 28, 29 years old that are career minor leaguers. So really, A is where, where a lot of the talent historically has tended to congregate. And so you will see players, especially college players, will come in and they'll just dominate against some younger guys in the Midwest League or the South Atlantic League or the Pioneer League. And then you know they hit the Florida State League, which is a pitcher's league, and they, they do well there, and then they hit A and things fall apart. Um, so really i 'm a little bit skeptical until players hit that
0: double a level. you mentioned college players uh, is at what level talking about the premium college programs the one that the ones that turn up year in and year out at the college World Series in Omaha, what equivalent is that as far as uh, rookie league a ball high a
6: yeah, I would say it 's probably equivalent to high a um, You know some of the elite programs. When you, by the time you get to like the competition at the College World Series, is probably more like double A, but but those you know you don't play those you don't even like a you know a historically good team like Texas or somebody like that they don't play that competition day in and day out. Um, Right. So I would say really you know good uh, you know like the Southeastern Conference in in baseball is probably like high A, uh, probably about
0: that level. All right, uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with minor league expert Rob Gordon from baseballhq.com. Uh, Rob and the other minor league writers at baseballhq.com have their top 100 list out at the site. Always an exciting thing to look at. Uh, Rob, maybe you can give us a bit of a scoop here. Uh, what players made some big moves up the list?
6: Uh, Jose Fernandez is, the, is one of my favorites. He, um, he, he wasn't even on our, which was probably a mistake in hindsight, he wasn't even on our top 100 list last year. Uh, He was a 14th uh, overall pick in the 2011 draft. And so we just really, you know, as a high school kid, we didn't really have a chance to to see a ton of him. And, you know, he had a good debut in 2011, but it wasn't a lot of innings. Um, You know, so I think he came in with a lot of potential. You know, people liked his size. Obviously, he got picked 14th overall in the draft. Um, So there was a lot to like about him, but you just hadn't really seen him do it at at sort of a, a higher level. Um, and this year he went 14-1 and with a 175 ERA, and he struck out 35 and, uh, I'm sorry, walked 35 and struck out 158 and, and looked really good in the Futures game. Um, so he went from not being ranked to number eight on the list. So that was probably one of the biggest guys, you know, the guys that jumped up the most. Um, another guy who is, is kind of interesting is Alan Hansen. Is um, He went from not being ranked to being number 38, um, this Sort of a shortstop, probably end up being playing second base. He's playing shortstop right now, but was an international free agent signed in 09, um, And people liked his talent. He had a good, a, a good debut season, but then kind of struggled uh, last year in 2011, and then just really exploded in, in 2012, hitting 307 with 16 home runs and 35 stolen bases. Which for you know middle infield, or whether he plays short or, or second, that's you, you know you got a guy who might be a 2020 kind of player there.
0: And uh, Jose Fernandez, a pitcher in the Miami system, right?
6: Yeah, he's with the Marlins, yeah.
0: Okay. And uh, who fell down the list? Uh, anybody who was on the 2012 list that obviously didn't make the major leagues, which would graduate you off the list anyway, but, but seems to have fallen down in your guys' estimation?
6: Yeah, a couple guys. I mean, we talked about him before, Julio Tehran. Uh, you know, he fell from number 40, or number 4 to number 30. Um, you know, he really struggled with his mechanics and confidence last year. His fastball velocity was, was down kind of low in the low. He, you know, he had been in the mid 90s, um, you know, sitting at like 92, 94, hitting 95. And last year he was kind of at 90, 90 to 92 and really topping out at 93. So, you know, was, there, was it just a mechanical issues? He's got like a real bad front side mechanic sometimes. Um, or was there a little bit of an injury or was there just an attitude problem? You know, there were talk about him being, a, you know, in the Braves rotation last year. And he didn't he didn't get that chance to do that and struggled most of the year put up a you know over a five ERA and his his K rate and you know not only did the velocity go down but his strikeout rate went down um, so he you know he dropped a little bit I, I do have some concerns about him I don't I, mean, I, I think I think he'll be better in 2013 I think he certainly got the inside track maybe at the fourth or fifth spot in Atlanta but I mean who knows it's, it's, I think scouts were kind of at a loss to figure out what happened there I mean it didn't seem like the mechanical things that were going on were fundamentally that bad. I mean, it, you know, it, it, don't ex- it doesn't necessarily explain the loss of velocity. So it kind of, you know, if his velocity is back up this spring, I think maybe maybe some of that goes away. But but I definitely have some concerns about him. Um, another guy who I think I was pretty high on last year, he was number 19 on our list, uh, It was Brett Jackson. He actually did get some, some major league time with the Cubs and, at the end of the season and just looked horrible. He hit 175, and, I think on the year, he struck, he struck out 158 times before he got called up, and then he struck out 58 times after the Cubs called him up. So that's over 200 strikeouts. So, I, you know, he, he fell all the way to number 58. And, um, you know, I, I was very high on him. I still think he's got a lot of tools. He's, he might not ever hit for average, but I could still see him being a 2020 player. It's just he might not ever hit enough to have much value.
0: In a general sense, Rob, you said you had five guys turn in your list, and then you average them out, or, or have some process to kind of uh, pick in, uh, and and match them up. How many how how many players on each list are only on one list?
6: There, you know, they're surprising surprisingly were not that many. Uh, obviously, as you get to the tail end of the list, there are some guys that you know maybe I had it at ninety one, and uh, you know nobody else had on their list. But even even then. Um, it was really only a handful of guys that were that were really at the sort of at the bottom end. I mean, a lot of times we might have them in a different place. So you know, I talked about Gregory Polanco being higher on him, but everybody had him on the list. So it really it really wasn't until you got to the tail end where you started to see some guys that that missed out on on uh, they were on my list or on Jeremy's list, but they weren't on anyone else's list.
0: And you mentioned talking about Brett Jackson, for instance, and and you say, well, there's a lot. That's a lot of strikeouts, and that's something that you really need to keep an eye on before you can make a call on him going forward. And at the same time, you talked about Julio Teran and his fastball velocity and and uh, to a certain extent his control because of his mechanics. Is there a key stat that? those of us who don't do this to the extent that you do, we rely on you so much, but is there something, a single stat for a batter and a single stat for a pitcher that we as um, lay people, for want of a better term, when we're looking at the prospects and we're looking at the minor league stats, can sort of focus in on and say, you know, this guy's strikeout rate is 6.7 at A That's too low to, to really project well to the majors. And similarly for hitters, is it contact rate or something? What is it?
6: Well, I, I think I don't know if I could narrow it down to just one thing, but I think I could probably narrow it down to a couple of things. So, for hitters, plate discipline—you know—the the, strikeout to walk ratio is, is huge. I mean, it—you know—I think there's lots and lots of evidence. You look at the minor league equivalencies that we have in the in the minor league baseball book, and you can see somebody might hit, especially if it's like the California League or something like that. Somebody might hit 300, but you know, they their plate discipline is is horrible and so is that it's really kind of fluky that they hit 300 and historically you're going to look at that and say that that batting average is going to come down if that if that strikeout to walk ratio doesn't improve and if they don't make more contact so i think plate discipline contact rate and obviously early power is something that, that is highly desirable because that does tend to increase as players get more experience and figure out what pitches they can really drive uh, for pitchers, it, it really it's a combination of strikeout to walk ratio, so the command ratio that we use um, being at least you know 2.0 or higher. Um, I, I you know in the minor leagues, I really like to see it be 3.0 or higher, um, just because it's going to regress as, the, as, as they move up. And then also uh, you know a dominance rate, a strikeout uh, you know strikeout rate of, of, of 9.0 or better, because that is going to come down as as they move up. The guys you know who are striking out 10 guys per per nine at, uh, at single A are not going to do that in the major leagues. So given that that's going to come down, so it's really one of the tricky things I think is when you look at a guy who's, who's not walking anybody, like like Robbie Irwin for the, for the Padres, he hardly walks anybody. He gets a lot of strikeouts in the minors because he's got good breaking ball and he knows how to locate. How is a guy like that going to transition? Because you look at him and he's going to jump out. He meets all those criteria. He's going to jump out, but his fastball velocity is really kind of 90 to 92 so how is that going to translate once he reaches the majors? That's that's the tricky one. When guys throw, you know, so it's really blending those things, the, 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 the command ratio for a pitcher, the dominance rate, and then the skills. Because you might statistically jump out and say you meet all these criteria, but, you know, the guy only throws 88. Is he really going to be able to do that in the majors?
0: Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, and... Is that where the scouting comes in, where you look at, where you actually just kind of have to look at the guy, whether on video or live, and you have to say, you know, he meets all the scouting, all these stat criteria, but I just doubt it, and conversely, he doesn't quite meet all the stats criteria, but I just like the way he goes about his business.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that that's where the scouting piece is key, and actually watching the player, whether it's on video or in person, is obviously better. You know, to see to see what it, what. The, what's the player doing? I mean, you know, there are tons of guys that, that rack up all kinds of strikeouts with a with a good curveball or a good changeup, and if you don't know, like it, Clayton Kershaw was a great example. When he was in the minors, he had a he had this nasty, you know, sweeping curveball that he still throws, but he also has a tighter curveball that he can throw for strikes. So one of my concerns with him is that he threw this big sweeping curveball that no one in the minors could hit, but it wasn't a strike. It was, you know it broke so far it was out of the strike zone, so. How is the, Or a guy's got a great changeup. Well, you know, major league hitters can hit good changeups, so they just lay off of it. Um, you know, so how is that going to? Is he able to throw whatever he's doing that's getting those strikeouts? Is that going to transition well to the major leagues, or is there going to be a problem because because of, you know he's throwing strikes that he's throwing pitches that people the minor leaguers are swinging and missing at, but the major leaguers are just not going to even swing at.
0: Or conversely, they're going to swing at and hit it hit it real hard because they're better hitters. Uh, let me ask you this, the list, the top 100 list, is it, to what extent is it matched to fantasy needs as opposed to a more general look at the guy's potential as a major leaguer?
6: Yeah, it, it, we try to balance it, obviously. Um, you know, I do think we're not just strictly doing scouting. Um, uh, we really are trying to blend it with the statistics and with, uh, with you know, fantasy, um, but I think if we err on anything, we err on the side of, uh, of the scouting um, slightly. Uh, so, like somebody like Billy Hamilton, you know, he—I think probably on a lot of uh, you know fantasy lists, he might he might be ahead of and Profar, who's who's at the top of our list, just because you know he stole 155 bases last year, and who doesn't who doesn't want that on their on their major league team uh, for fantasy reasons, right? right. So, you know, he, I don't remember what number he is in our list, but he's he's not not in the top five or even the top ten. I think he might be 18 or something like that. You know, because there are concerns about what position is he going to play. He's not really good defensively. They're talking about having him play center field. Um, is he really going to be a center fielder? You know, he's played maybe 20 games there, uh, most of them in the Arizona Fall League. So, you know, I think we're going to err on the side of caution there on real baseball, you know, value because we don't know where he's going to play yet. If he, a, if he was a plus defender at shortstop, he would, he would be, you know, much more in the top five kind of range. Um, but he's not a plus defender at shortstop, and so that's where the real world matches up. But the, the reality is, if he, can't, if he doesn't have a position to play, it affects your fantasy team, too, because he's not going to get as many at-bats as people might think.
0: Billy Hamilton, 23rd on the list, uh, which uh, raised a few eyebrows in the comments section, I can tell you right away, but these kind of lists always do, right?
6: Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and you know, I think that's where that's where we try to, you know, to blend that and balance that. You know, and we do... We do In the book, uh, the minor league book, and in the forecaster, we do also have a, a top 100 uh, fantasy list. And so somebody like Billy Hamilton is going to be much higher on those kinds of lists than they would be on the, just the strictly scouting list.
0: And is there any kind of formula or method that somebody can t- look at while they're taking in the top 100 and say... Most of these guys pretty much are in fantasy for uh, a good order for fantasy purposes. Notwithstanding outliers like Hamilton with his hundred bag speed, but most of these guys are just good ball players. But is there is there anything on the list that I can say this is a guy I ought to discount for fantasy purposes because uh, maybe the first thing that pops to my mind, Rob, is his defensive value as in real baseball doesn't translate to most formats of fantasy.
6: No, but it can it can prevent somebody from getting a chance to play though. Right, and so if a yeah. guy's if a guy's not good at the defensive position, he might he might have all the offensive tools in the world, but he he might not actually get a chance to play in a major league team. But I think I think you know the the nice thing about the list is it is linked to the scouting reports, and so if you click you know if you go to the list and click on the players that you're interested in, it will take you to the scouting report that provides a much more detailed analysis and sure. gives them the you know the the overall grade, the one through ten grades that we give in the. The, uh you know A through E grade that we give the players and so you know really kind of uh, reading it I, I think I think you're you're on thin ice if you're just going to look at a top 100, 100 list whether it's ours or anybody else's and say I'm going to go with that guy and you don't really read it you do more much more research beyond that I think you really have to look at the scouting report and blend that with where you know where the players at on the top 100 list.
0: Were you at all surprised when you finally had your top one hundred list finalized that three of the top ten guys in it were traded in the off season?
6: Yes, that I, I can't remember a time when that happened previously. At least not in the last decade. Um, usually those guys, you know, those guys, those are the players that are like no these these are players that that are untouchable. Um, but they weren't this year, <laughs> so that was very interesting.
0: And. Uh, one sort of last question about the the um, particulars of the list. I noticed Bubba Starling really fell quite a bit on the list this year. What what went wrong with his career path?
6: Well, I just think he, you know he, he he he's raw still, um, you know. And I think I think we were everyone was pretty excited about the raw tools, and I think those tools are, are still there. He just he just re- didn't have a chance. I mean, that was one of the things. You know, he he was he didn't get a lot of exposure as a as a high school. Player, you know just where he played and uh, the level of competition that he played in, um, you know, and he was he was a little bit overmatched and a little bit more raw than I think people thought he was going to be. Um, I still think I still think people are very, you know, scouts are still optimistic, and I'm still optimistic about about his long term potential. He's just got more work to do than people thought he did uh, was going to have. I think people thought he was going to just hit the ground running just because of his raw tools. But you know, the raw as I said, the raw tools don't necessarily. Mean the player is a polished player and ready to and ready to go, and so he had, just had more holes in his game than people thought he was going to.
0: Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with BaseballHQ.com Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. And Rob, before we let you go, you've got the top 100 out this week on the site. You said next week's going to be some analysis by you and, and Jeremy Deloney, the uh, co-author of the Minor League Baseball Analyst. And of course, we want all our listeners to be aware that the book is coming out and give us the ordering details and when they can expect to see this year's edition of a really excellent fantasy resource.
6: Yeah, it, the, the book is coming out. We just finished it at uh, the beginning of January, so I think the ship date is uh, is estimated January 28th. Um, it's 1995 for the book. Uh, there's about 1,000 players that we provide scouting reports for. Um, we have a a, a, sh- a short write-up, about a paragraph write-up on each player, so there is a scouting report, and then we also look at the players' last three to four years of stats. Um, we give them a, a, each player a grade, so you know, a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, and then we give them a letter grade of how likely is that, so a player might be a a nine player, which it may has the you know potential to be an elite major leaguer, but maybe that you know on a, sc- a scale of A through E, A being good, E being not so good and, and very unpolished. So maybe a guy's a nine E, which means he could reach that potential, but it's not very likely given where he's at right now. Or somebody you know who's a nine B is very likely to reach that potential. So we give each player a grade like that, and then we also give them. Uh, an ETA for for when the player is going to reach the majors and also what their future role is going to be and so maybe the guy's playing shortstop right now but we're not convinced and maybe we think they're going to move to third base Um, so it's really and there's also good essays at the beginning of the book and then um, there's probably six or seven essays at the beginning of the book and then at the end of the book we have a list of lists and so the the top 100 um, prospects are on there the um, top fantasy prospects are on there, the top 15 from each organization is in there and the top prospects by each skill so stolen base, uh, batting average, strikeout rate,
0: that kind of thing. Rob, I said we were going to wrap this up, but I do have to ask you one more question. You just reminded me of it when you said something just now, and that's about the organizations. How much weight or emphasis, how much do you look at the organizations to say this is a prospect who might be worth a little more or a little less based on the fact that if he's with Tampa, they have a good track record of finding and developing prospects as opposed to, say, lately at least the New York Mets?
6: Yeah normally I think we you know, we definitely pay attention to that you know the um the Braves system is actually is actually pretty pretty weak compared to where they're normally at but you know I think historically they've done a really good job especially with pitching and so if the Braves are pretty high on on some pitchers um, I'm definitely going to look more carefully at that and, and and be a little bit more skeptical if the you know if the if the Mets say they've got you know the next great pitching prospect I don't know how many times I've heard that before you know and then you see the player pitch and it's like oh that's that player really isn't <laughs> look all that good. Um, so you know, looking at the organization really does matter. We do we do pay attention to that kind of thing. But you know, it's it's more of a general maybe skepticism about certain organizations and, and slight optimism about other organizations, but you really have to see the player individual player play to get a, a good read on the on the guy.
0: Yeah, it's not much of a recommendation to say this guy could be the next Bill Pulsifer. Right. <laughs> Rob Gordon, uh, oh, you're 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 also coming back this year to Baseball HQ Radio, our po- weekly podcast, with your Minor League Minute every week, looking at a particular player. Starting this week, doing double duty. Who are you looking at?
6: Uh, we're looking at Kyle Crick of the San Francisco Giants. is a nice young uh, player. It's it, it, an interesting guy because one of those guys who who actually he throws ninety four to ninety six, and then with a with a fastball and tops out at ninety nine. But he's all over the place, and so he's one of those guys that has you know the 10 plus strikeouts per 9 but he's also got five <laughs> walks per 9 and so he's going to be an interesting he didn't he he just made it into our um, our top 100 list at the, at the back end um, but it'd be a really interesting guy to watch going forward he could be really good or he could continue to struggle with control and maybe end up being kind of a closer um, but a really nice power arm
0: and heaven knows the giants could use some pitching uh, rob gordon thanks very much for doing this we'll look forward to hearing your uh Report on Kyle Crick, and we'll be in touch throughout the year. And of course, you'll have your weekly report as well.
6: Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on, Patrick.
0: It's our pleasure, Rob. Thank you. Uh, Rob Gordon is a minor league expert at baseballhq.com. Also, the co-author of the Minor League Baseball Analyst, and he has the top 100 prospect list out now at baseballhq.com site. Our regular commentaries are coming up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio.
4: One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting, the outfield deep and straight away.
1: Fastball
4: is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence.
0: It is gone.
5: for baseball what a marvelous moment for atlanta and the state of georgia what a marvelous moment
4: for the country in the world a black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol and it is a great moment for all of us and particularly for henry aaron who was met at home plate Not only
1: by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother
4: came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck,
6: kissed him for all she was worth. Baseball
4: HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with his new feature, HQ Alternatives. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with master notes. And leading off, yes, he's back, the minor league minute. It's BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about San Francisco right-handed pitcher Kyle Crick. The San Francisco Giants' Kyle Crick
4: is one of the more exciting young hurlers in the National League. The 20-year-old right-hander from Texas features a plus 94 to 96-mile-an-hour fastball that can reach as high as 99 miles an hour. He complements the fastball with a curve, a slider, and a change-up. Crick's slider was dramatically improved in 2012 and really gives him a chance to be an elite starter. His change-up was also improved, but like many young fireballers, Crick really struggles with control and is far from a finished product. While he struck out 10.4 per nine, he also walked 5.4 per nine, but was also very tough to hit and limited opposing batters to a 193 batting average against. Crick has plenty of work to do, but if he can harness his stuff and continue to refine his slider and changeup, he has the stuff to be the next Giants' number one starter. If that doesn't pan out, his fastball slider combination give him the tools to close. Crick and fellow Giants prospect Clayton Blackburn will head to the Cal and give the team one of the better one-two punches in the National League. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon.
0: Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garrapey, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on the top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-ups, just everything you need to keep tab on the rising stars in baseball. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, well, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now, our new feature, HQ Alternatives, with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking about alternative formats, alternative strategies, and alternative lifestyles. Okay, we're just kidding about the lifestyles. This week, Matt's topic is the different games you can play.
5: I'm Matt Beagle, and this is the HQ Alternative, a new program where we look at alternative formats, alternative strategies, and just alternative ways to look at the game we all enjoy every day. This week we'll start with alternative formats. As many of you know, I'm a video blogger for Stratomatic, and that's one of three main simulation games, APBA and Diamond Mine being the other two. Simulation formats come in all shapes and sizes, but basically, the difference between them and your typical rotisserie format is twofold. Number one, fielding is important. Each game rates individual players not only on their offensive statistics, but also how well they play defense. They'll look at their range factor frequency of turning double plays, arm strength, and error frequency. And each company uses their own formula to come up with different fielding ratings for the players. More importantly you actually get to manage the franchise. We all love to be the general manager for our rotisserie team. Imagine if you could be the actual manager. You could set the lineup, determine which pitcher you have, when to pinch hit, when to steal, when to bring in a reliever. All those situations come into play when you play most simulation baseball games. And this gives you much more involvement in the regular season and gives you much more control over what happens on a day-to-day basis. Everything that's good, though, has a downside. And the main downside to simulation formats is that they use last year statistics to play the games. Well, that may sound really, a, take a lot of fun out of the process, but in actuality, Most of the leagues are drafting right now, and when you're playing the games, you're playing in April, May, June, July for most leagues. So you're playing simultaneously with the regular season, and you get to watch the regular baseball season, see how your players do, and know it will affect their statistics for the following season. So you get to enjoy the previous season as well as the current one. So even though it sounds like it may be a little bit of a drawback to be a previous season, it also gives you some known factors. We all love to quantify things, and it's not easy to quantify what is known versus what is unknown. And that creates some interesting strategy of your own as you decide if you're going to go for it this year using known numbers and how you may attack those numbers versus whether you're going to play for the future and guess on players' performance next year. And each team sort of has to go through that situation each year, whether they're going to rebuild their team or reload for another run at the pennant. Another great feature to the alternative formats and simulation games is that you get to really enjoy the offseason, as that's when most leagues draft rookies from the previous year and make trades. So while you have no games to watch on TV live, you have simulation games you can do on your computer And you can trade with other managers and scout last year's emerging players to decide which ones you'd like to draft in the coming year. That creates months of enjoyment in the offseason. Basically from November through March and then ongoing, you'll see leagues drafting and trading and thinking about baseball even though it's the offseason. You can also go back and play historical seasons or previous seasons. Most game companies have the 1961 season and other memorable seasons from the past Maybe you can manage some of the heroes from your childhood and see how they actually perform in a simulation format. You can make your own team up of your favorite players from the past and play them against today's greats. And most of the game companies have formulas that allow that to happen easily and accurately, most importantly. So to get you through the winter doldrums, Go check out Stratomatic, APBA, or Diamond Mind to find the simulation game that may fit you. You'll find that it's great entertainment throughout the winters, helps you get closer to your kids if you have them, you can get them involved in these leagues, and all the things and stats are done all for you through the computer programs. They have the traditional dice and card games where you manually do the statistics. Or for the computer feel, you can have the statistics all done for you and play a lot more games in a lot shorter period of time. Most game companies offer either format. With the HQ Alternative for Baseball HQ and HQ Radio, I'm Matt Beagle.
0: Matt Beagle writes columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes, with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about looking ahead to the 2013 fantasy baseball season.
3: Welcome to the beginning of the 2013 season. Yes, I know there's still snow on the ground in many places. More important, we haven't even gotten the insights of the ultimate prognosticator on February 2nd. But it's not too early to speculate. It begins now. It starts with Mike Trout. Last fall, I was asked in a radio interview the percent chance that last year was the best season that Trout would ever put up. I said 99%. It was a bold statement, but I still stand behind it. In the ADP rankings at Mock Draft Central and RT Sports, Trout is listed at number one. Number one! In the coming weeks, I'll be talking about how incredibly absurd that is. In fact, I think Trout is probably the absolute worst investment in redraft leagues this year. In the coming weeks, I'll also be talking about changes to our fantasy game. As I wrote in this year's Baseball Forecaster, we need to come to terms with our ever-shortening attention spans and reposition the game to better fit into the way today's fantasy leaguer wants to play. doesn't require sacrifice, it requires us to be a little open-minded to current realities. Some of the other topics I'll be talking about this year include some insights on the Hall of Fame. Not that this hasn't already been talked to death, but there is a way that we can fix this. And it's something within our own capability to do, whether or not the powers that be, Baseball Writers Association, wants to continue presiding over their parochial view of fame. Buggy whips and floppy disks are long gone. It's time. One last thing, Please follow me on Twitter at Ron Chandler, at Ron Chandler. These podcasts give me the chance to drone on and on, but my tweets are delicious bite-sized nuggets of random brain flakes that are low in saturated fat and only 144 calories each. If I can leave you with one of those tasty nuggets to chew on until next week, consider this. This spring... Please, let's not project 2013 using last season as a baseline. This year is a blank slate. Teams can improve and decline by dozens of games. Players can put up numbers far out of line with expectation or history, and then wildly swing back in another direction the following season. Just watch. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler.
0: Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about what you've been missing on Twitter. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. And, of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of January 18th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number one of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. Just sounds exciting to say it. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and do take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with BaseballHQ.com minor leagues expert Rob Gordon. Really knows his onions about the youngsters down on the farm, so important in the modern fantasy game. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our league watch analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Rob Gordon did double duty with the minor league minute. Matt Beagle had our new alternative HQ segment. And our master notes commentator, baseballhq.com publisher Ron Chandler. Be sure you check out baseballhq.com right now for these features. Doug Dennis has a look at 2013 sleeper relievers. Really valuable information there jock thompson's dynasty leagues column looks at relief pitchers part of his series about building dynasty league rosters and of course we have that top 100 prospects list we talked about with rob gordon earlier in the show plus we'll have all the regular features on playing time facts and flukes our buyers guides and much more i'm patrick davitt i have part one of a research piece on the effects of the new park changes in seattle and san diego and i also hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums You can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.
2: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking, and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.